Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, I pray that our hearts would be open to understand your character. I pray, Lord, that you would actually speak to each of us. In the places where we struggle to believe that you would be good to us, I pray, Lord, that our faith would grow. Amen. During the reading of the gospel, Sam looked at me and said, where's the rest of it? And if you found yourself wondering the exact same thing, Luke gives us a bit of an abbreviated form of the Lord's Prayer. Maybe when we get to heaven, we'll say, Luke, why did you choose to cut out those other pieces? Did you not think those ones were as important as the rest? I don't know the answer to that question. The first verse, though, that you hear where the disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples, this is an important verse, perhaps more important than we might think. It's not just the introduction. There's much here for us. There's things that we can learn. We can learn from this very simple verse that prayer is actually something that we can grow in, that we can learn to do more of, that it's a skill, an art form even, a labor that can actually get more advanced in our lives. They're asking, teach us to pray. Show us something that we haven't already seen. I don't know how that strikes you, that prayer is something that you could actually grow in, learn more of. That might actually be encouraging to you because you go, my prayer life is not where I want it to be. It may also be frustrating to you because you may say, I thought prayer is just telling God what's on my heart. It's interesting that that particular bias of American Christianity is one that Jesus doesn't seem to share. When the disciples say, teach us to pray, he doesn't say, just tell God what's on your heart. Of course, it's good and beautiful to tell God what's on your heart. But what's actually striking to me is that Jesus tells them to pray what seems to be on his heart. That's beautiful. That learning to pray would be learning to pray beyond our own hearts. Learning to pray according to the heart of Jesus. That's the first thing that we can see in that opening verse, that prayer is something that we could actually get better at as we get older if we follow the Lord Jesus' heart. Another thing that we could see in this very simple opening verse is that prayer marks whose we are. The disciples look at Jesus and they say, teach us to pray the way John taught his disciples. John's disciples were marked by the way they prayed. And Jesus' disciples say, we want to be marked as people who pray like you. Prayer, the way we pray, marks whose we are. The way we pray shows what we believe in. It shows what we value. It shows what we hope comes true. And Jesus gives his disciples a way of praying that fits him. People who care about the things he cares about like the beauty of God's name. People who care about things that he cares about, like the free gift of forgiveness back and forth. As we begin to realize the sort of prayer we're going to be marked by if we submit to Jesus' heart, his prayer, you may go, whoa, some of these things aren't the things that I naturally care about. I don't spend a lot of time in my life working for the glory of God's name 
or the sanctity of his kingdom. In fact, I struggle to give forgiveness because I don't have an easy time receiving it. When we begin to, be realize, when we begin to realize that we're going to be marked by this prayer, I think most of us, if we're honest, will be forced to confess first. Where we go, before I can pray this prayer that will mark me in sincerity, I have to acknowledge all the places that I've withheld forgiveness, all the places where I've not sought the sanctity of God's name, not really cared about his kingdom and my life. The prayer marks us. A prayer is something we can learn. Prayer marks us in terms of whose we are, what we value. A third thing that comes out of this simple verse is very simply that prayer forms us. It doesn't just show whose we are, but it actually begins to shape our very hearts. And I think this is a part of the point when the disciples say, teach us to pray. Let our hearts be shaped like yours. Let them be formed like yours. Let them become the sort of hearts that pray the way that you would pray. Let us be changed by our prayer. That's something that I would actually offer to y'all as an encouragement this morning. Because if y'all are like me, there's so many times when you come before the Lord and your heart feels fairly dead, stony and cold and silent. I imagine the disciples felt this way at times. But by plunging into the way that Jesus prays, by plunging into the things that he values, by saying, I will follow them and pray them even when my heart is cold, we actually begin to be reshaped by this prayer life. And so by praying in accord with the heart of Jesus, we end up praying more with a heart of Jesus. We become like him. In other words, these are all things that we can learn from this particular simple opening sentence. To be honest, I have to restrain myself because I think I could get lost in some of those. Talking about what it means to learn prayer, to grow in it. We could spend all of our time on that. But I want to go somewhere else. I want to go into the prayer itself and go where Jesus leads us with this prayer. He opens with this first thing that we pray, hallowed be your name. As often as we say this, my guess is most of us rarely consider what we're actually saying. Hallowed be your name. In this moment, you may go, well, wait a minute, okay, there's a commandment that says we don't take God's name in vain. We're supposed to treat it as holy. But what does it mean in the positive sense, hallowed be thy name? Jesus is actually working with a normal Old Testament theme here. You find this all over the prophets. The idea that Jesus' name, the name of God the Father, the name of God himself, you find this idea that his name could be dishonored. In fact, one of the things that you find in the prophets over and over is the testimony of exactly how they have dishonored God's name. They've spoiled his reputation. That's the way that we would say it. They've treated him like dirt, and therefore the nations around them think God is of no value. If that's how his people treat him, why would you ever follow him? They've dishonored his name. The way that the people normally treat him like dirt is pretty simple. They worship false gods. This is one of the, like, example A, you treated God like dirt because you worshiped a false god. Example B, you see in the prophets, sexual sin. You haven't followed what God said sexually. You've treated him like dirt, ruined his reputation. 
Example C, one that actually should cut to the heart of all of us. You've refused justice to those who are suffering. This is one that God seems to care a great deal about in the prophets. And he says, when his people fail to do it, you've dishonored my name. These are the sorts of things that get listed when God says, you've actually not honored me. You've refused justice. You've worshipped false gods. You've committed sexual sin. And because of this, the nations, they look at you and they actually say, why in the world would we worship your God? You've dishonored my name. But the beauty of the message that we hear in the prophets over and over and over, the beauty of the message is that God says this, just because you've done this, this is not the end of the story. Frequently, he says to his people, you have dishonored my name, but I'm not going to let the story end there. And so what he says to them is, I'm going to come and I'm going to honor my own name. I'm going to prove who I am to all the nations, and everybody will worship me in that moment. I will demonstrate to the people the sort of character that I have, the sort of reputation that I have, and I will demonstrate to them that I am worthy of worship. I will show them my goodness and my power, my mercy, my justice. I'm going to hallow my own name. And you say, how does God plan to do this? And this is the part that's stunningly beautiful. Because in this story, you go, so the people have dishonored God's name. And God says, I will honor my own name so people know who I really am. And he says, but I'm going to do it by showing mercy back on you even when you don't deserve it. That's stunning. They dishonored his name. And so he says, I'll turn around and rescue you. And people will see how truly good I am. This is what it means for God's name to be honored. Think about this. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name, what we're actually saying is, Lord, prove yourself to be good and merciful and honest and faithful and true, and prove it in our lives so that everyone around us sees it and so that they want to worship you. And you go, and how will you prove it in our lives? By rescuing us when we don't deserve it. It's a stunning prayer. It's a prayer that God would show mercy, that God would prove his character, and that people around us would begin to see his goodness because of what he's done in our life. This is all that's behind, hallowed be thy name. This, by the way, should make you think back to many of the places where we hear this sort of expression. I think about Isaiah 26, 8 this song that the people of God are supposed to sing, where one of the lines they say, your name and your reputation are the desires of our souls. Wouldn't that be beautiful if that became the desires of our souls? Your name and your reputation. Or I think about Philippians 2, where Paul traces the descent of Christ to the cross. And then he says, because of what Christ was willing to submit to, therefore God highly exalted him. And what's the next line? and bestowed on him the name above all names. And what happens because of that? That every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The name above all names. You see, that's the point. When God acts to save his people, his name is honored. And what happens as a result of that is that everyone has to confess that this 
is the only one worthy of worshiping. You see, that's the point, and that's kind of where I want to lead with this, is that our propensity is to worship anything and everything but God. Worship our own desires. Worship money. Worship sex. Worship power. Worship things that seem to deliver. And the point of this is, what would it mean if only God in your life seemed worthy of worship? That's what it means for his name to be honored. When you realize that that's what we're praying for when you see hallowed be thy name, then we begin to go, it makes perfect sense that this is tied intricately to your kingdom come. Because God's kingdom reigns wherever his name is honored. God's kingdom reigns wherever people are falling down before him and saying, you and you only are worthy of my worship. This is what it means for God's kingdom to be present, is when a people says, only you are worthy of my time. Only of you are worthy of my energy, my money, my worship. This is what it would mean for his kingdom to reign. Can you imagine if that were our society? If in this place, the posture of the people is only God is worth my time. Only God is worth my money. Only God is worth my energy. That would be his kingdom reigning. What if the beat of Jesus' heart, the beat of mercy, of kindness, of justice, of truth, what if that governed our economic structures? What if that governed our political structures? This is what it would be if his kingdom were reigning here, and this is what we are praying for. Perhaps more personally, what would it look like if the beat of Jesus' heart governed your life? What if his peace were the thing that dominated your fears? What if his truth were the thing that turned you to truth rather than falsehood? What if his mercy were the thing that brought you close when you were terrified? This would be his kingdom coming in your life. This is what we're praying for. I said at the beginning that we learn that prayer marks whose we are. And as soon as we see that, we realize that in we, as we pray these things, we need to confess because there's so many places where we don't live the way that we pray. This is one of those places where most of us need to actually drop to our knees and say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for all the times and places I've sought things that are anything other than your kingdom, where the values of this world rather than the values of this kingdom have governed my heart. Forgive me and transform me so that I can pray in sincerity, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. You see what I mean? The petitions that follow begin to demonstrate what it means to be people of the kingdom of God. They're not just this random, I mean, I think you could read the Lord's Prayer and think that it's like a charm bracelet, like these individual charms unrelated to one another, but they're not that at all. It's much more like a tower where the base is the widest bit and each piece is built on the one that follows. And so when we come to give us this day our daily bread, this isn't a random following of your kingdom come. What we're discovering is what people of the kingdom actually look like. Because people of the kingdom come to God and say, you're the provider and I'm not. People of the kingdom say, I'm going to stop pretending like I can solve everything by my own effort and my own work. People of the kingdom say, I'm not going to try to pretend like I control the world. 
because I can't even control my own life. And so people of the kingdom open their hands in dependence, and they say, you're going to have to take care of me because I can't do it myself. This, by the way, should be a burden lifted off the shoulders. We are so proud and we want to hang on to control so hard, and yet we all know how futile it is. We cannot keep our life in order. We cannot do all that we need to do. And people of the kingdom say, he's God. I'm not. You can see in that how praying, give us this day our daily bread, is actually a way of honoring his name. Because suddenly we're treating him like God. We're treating ourselves like creatures. And we're saying, I need what you have to offer. I don't have enough on my own. These prayers aren't unrelated, but intricately tied together. The people of the kingdom are the sort of people who actually say, forgive me and help me forgive others. Think about the beauty of his kingdom, a place where people don't hold accounts of wrong done. That's the nature of his kingdom. And so it makes sense that people praying according to the heartbeat of Jesus would pray for freedom from burdens and chains and guilt and sin. When Jesus showed up in Nazareth at the beginning of his ministry and opened the scroll of Isaiah, the very first thing he read to his hometown is, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to announce good news. And you look at what the good news is, and the good news is liberation. It's freedom. This is what he's coming to bring, is freedom from all that enslaves. Freedom from the things that capture your own heart and enslave it. Freedom from the things that catch me. And so it makes sense when he says, here's how you pray like the kingdom. We have this prayer in it of freedom from our very guilt itself. Lord, set me free from all the things that I have done wrong. Set me free from the shame and the guilt that I cannot let go of on my own accord. And tied to that is, let me be a person who does this to others. Because if this is the way the family of the kingdom works, no accounts held ever. Let me be a person like Jesus, freely giving and receiving forgiveness. Set free of those things that I can't shake of my own accord. This is the way the people of the kingdom pray, because this is what Jesus values. That should sink in for just a second. Jesus is explaining his values, his heart. And he says to you, I long for you to be set free. Set free from the things that still plague your conscience. Set free from the things that you can't shake by your own power. I want your freedom. This is what he says. The next petition. Lead us not into temptation. I love this. It's like Jesus is publicly acknowledging to his disciples, guys, you don't have the faith of Job. You're not a hero. Just go ahead and ask God, God, protect me from those moments where I'd shipwreck the faith, because you're not that strong. Your obedience can falter pretty easily. And all of us go, and mine too, and mine too. And so he says, look, when you're praying in accord with the kingdom, it's good and right that you say to the Father, keep me from those places and times where I'm not strong enough. Keep me from those temptations that I can't handle of my own accord. Keep me from those tests that would break my faith. It's a beautiful and humble prayer. And again, it's not disconnected from the rest, because indeed, it's a way of honoring God's name. 
to say openly to them, this is my weakness and my humility. I just don't have enough strength to conquer every temptation. And so please prevent me from running into the ones that are actually too much for me. It's a way of actually being on our knees in humility before God and acknowledging that he is the Lord, honoring his name, and that we are not. It's a beautiful prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. I want to close, though, with the two parables that Jesus tells after walking us through this prayer. And the two parables have effectively the same force behind them, the same point. Jesus makes it clear what he's saying. The second one is a more specific application of the first, but in both, his point is very explicit. God answers prayers. God answers prayers. God answers prayers. It's really important, though, for us to back up and go, Jesus did not teach the disciples, pray, Lord, give me a Ferrari. He did not teach the disciples, Lord, give me the ability to dunk a basketball so that I can dominate my friends and pick up. He actually said, here's the things that you should be praying for. And then he said, and God answers prayers. My point in that, and I think you can see where he's going, is that we could stretch this promise in places that Jesus does not put it. He makes it clear that when we pray in accord with the kingdom, those prayers will be answered. That is clear. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. But what he's talking about is people who are praying in accord with his heart. There's times that he gives us things that are outlandish and way outside the realm of what he's told us here. But his point is more limited here. When you pray in accord with the kingdom, you can pray with absolute confidence. You can pray that God will actually do these things. That, although limited, should actually grab us. Because how many times have we prayed for forgiveness and doubted whether it would actually be given? How many times have we prayed for escape from temptation and doubted whether God would answer that prayer? These things that matter very deeply, provision for our needs, freedom from temptation, these are the sort of things that he says you can pray these with absolute confidence because the Lord answers these prayers. The prayers of the kingdom are never discarded or forgotten. Even more, in the second parable, the second application of it, he says, and you can pray for the Holy Spirit. And perhaps this is the sort of, even though it's the last prayer given, maybe it's the very foundational prayer. Because we can't become people of the kingdom without the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's just not possible. We cannot do these things of our own accord or on our own strength. The gift of the Spirit has to come first. In fact, some of the greatest passages, perhaps the greatest one of the Old Testament, where God talks about saving his people to honor his name, Ezekiel 36, he says very explicitly, I'm going to put a new heart in them and give them my spirit. This whole path of building the kingdom, honoring the name of God by saving people, begins with the gift of the spirit. But Jesus' point is clear. He will give it. He will give it. If a father knows how to give food to his child, how much more will the heavenly father give the spirit to you? He will give it. And y'all have heard me quote this before and mention this before probably a number of times. But it cannot be overemphasized. 
The promise is that the Spirit will be given to those who seek. The Spirit will be given to those who ask. Don't hesitate, in other words. Where you are bankrupt, cry out, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. Where you are lonely, cry out, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. Where you do not have enough strength, cry out, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. The promise is clear. He gives the Spirit to those who ask. If you say, what's the proof? The proof that Paul offers in Romans 8 is that he's already offered the greatest gift of all. The Son on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. If one would give that, this is Paul's language of Romans 8, if God would give that, then he's not going to withhold anything from you because the greater gift has already been given, the Son of God crucified on your behalf. If he was willing to go to that, do you think he'll withhold his spirit from you now? But that's exactly what many of us actually struggle with, is I'm not worthy. God doesn't love me. I'm not good enough. He's going to withhold things from me. He's going to close his hands. He's not going to let me have his presence. But you hear how silly we sound? Because if he's already given the Son, if he's already given the Son, why would he not also freely give all things? And yet we fall back into that trap of I'm not good enough. Maybe God doesn't really love me. If people knew the sin that I carry around, maybe, I would, may, may, maybe he wants me out. And yet Jesus stands before you saying, do you not understand the character of the Father? Imagine in your eyes, imagine in your mind, imagine in your heart the best of human fathers. They don't come close. The Father gives good gifts. He gives gifts to those who seek him. He responds to their prayers. And so the call of Jesus in the end, it's so beautiful. The disciples say, teach us to pray. And where does he lead them? He leads them to, do you really understand the Father? Do you really understand the Father? At that point, when we begin to see the clarity and the beauty of his character, we get set free. Set free to express the needs and desires of our hearts, set free to pray for the coming of the kingdom, set free to worship in joy because he is good to his children. He's good to those who seek him. Amen.